Alright. Yo, it's a full house tonight, which is quite exciting. Just before, I, I'm going to pray for us before we start with um, tonight's message, but it's just so interesting for me. I know some of you are here for the first time, or you might not have been coming for a long time. You're quite new here. What you saw tonight might be a little bit out of the norm. Really, uh, people who want to follow the Holy Spirit where He goes and not follow a script. And for us in church, we, we really don't want to follow a script. We, we don't have a set plan. We don't have... Um, minute by minute layout of how each evening is going to work or each church service is going to work. We really want to follow the Lord and ask, God, what do you want to do? And we want to, as far as possible, go where the Lord wants to go because ultimately He is our Lord. He is our master and we want to follow Him. It's interesting that um, my wife, Carla, she has been receiving for some reason emails from a specific church. I won't mention the name. Um, because they thought that she is a leader in the church. So they've been sending her the Sunday planning for the church. And I checked on the emails and it was sent to her Carla Bassonia and she's Carla, she was Carla Basson. So I think that's where the mix up came. And she let them know, listen, I'm not in your church. You can stop emailing me, but they've just kept emailing her. And today it was so interesting as I read through it, minute by minute, what's gonna happen (laughs) like at the church. One minute for the guy to do welcoming. Then two minutes or three minutes, there's going to be a video with this teaching. Then, anyway, it's scripted for the hour that they meet, scripted minute by minute. And I understand why they're doing it, but I I feel like we want to be spirit-led and we want to say, God, as far as possible, you can throw our plans out. It's okay. We've got a more of a lesson idea what you want to do, but God, we want to follow you. Because when we follow God, that's when we hit a sweet spot, like I believe God wants us to hear tonight, and that's where he comes and he speaks into our lives. Amen? Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Our Father, I thank you for the privilege, Lord, that, um, that I'm able to speak tonight, and I don't understand why you chose me to do this. I don't feel qualified for the task, probably because I'm not, Lord, but I thank you that you are the one that wants to speak tonight, God. And through this broken vessel, God, I do pray that you would speak your words, that you would speak into hearts, God. I pray that beyond my capacity, beyond my words, that you would move beyond eloquence of words, God, but really with your power, come and move and change lives tonight. Lord, we trust in you that just as you moved in worship, just as you moved throughout the entire evening, that you would keep moving through this message, Lord. I want to be pliable in your hands, Lord, and I pray for all of us that we would have open hearts to follow where your spirit leads and that we would hear what you want to say tonight to us. In Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. So it is really exciting what's happening here, and I couldn't believe my eyes tonight when I walked in, and I just saw people coming and coming and coming, and I'm like, where did all of you come from? (laughs) Just have no clue where everyone's coming from, and the fact that the gallery at the top, you guys are amazing, that's quite full. We love you up there. I'm going to try. Now, it's not just preaching like this. It's preaching like this as well. So, yeah, thank you guys for sitting up there and uh, joining us from the top. But it really is exciting. And, and what's happened in this church plant has been quite significant for me. It's the first church plant that I've been part of, something that I've trusted God for for years. And coming to Stellenbosch, I knew that because of the work that I've seen God doing, that God wants to do something significant in Stellenbosch. And it's such a privilege being part of what's happening here. It's really exciting. There's a bit of a crowd forming here, and I believe that God can do, um, can do wonders. But those of you who don't know the story of Staley's PM, I've told it a few times, but about a year and a half ago, February, I never forget the exact date. Who remembers? 
the 9th of February last year, we had our first service with 40 people, which was quite exciting. Who was at the first service? 40 people. Who was part of the 40? Amazing. Bunch of you are still here. And then we had six services, only six or seven, I think, possibly six. And then that first lockdown started. So we had like a new church plant, new people coming, started with a group of 40 and somehow God added to us and we were hit by lockdown, which was quite interesting. So who joined us in the first six weeks that we actually started? A couple of you, a couple of you. There at the top, there's a couple of people. And from there, it's just been quite a wild ride. We've been pressing on, we've been going for it. And slowly but surely, God has been adding people to us. And I feel like he's, he's building his church in Stellenbosch all across the world, but in Stalys and Stalys PM. And God is really doing a significant work here. And it gets me extremely excited to see what's happening here. I want to hear as well, who have you, just for interest's sake, who have you joined us last year? Raise your hand. I just want to see it, just for interest's sake. Okay. And who have you joined us in the last uh, month for the first time? Okay. A bunch of you. And I want to hear, just for interest's sake, who have you actually got saved or recommitted their life to God Yeah, with us? Raise your hand. Oh, my word. Just keep your hand up quickly. Just want to see. Just keep those hands up. Saved or recommitted their lives here. Just look around you quickly. Listen, this is revival. This is God moving. If you've ever wondered, this is God moving. This is not something you see everywhere. Who got baptized in this church after joining this church? A couple of people. Amazing. Amazing. That's incredibly exciting. It's so exciting. It feels like God is doing something, and it's, um, it's exciting to see more and more people coming. But I, I actually want to, you can put the title slide up there if you have it. I hope that you have it. You don't have it. Oh, man. All right. It's okay. Um, but what I'm going to speak about tonight is counting the cost. So if you're making notes or you want to remember what I'm speaking about, I'm going to speak about counting the cost, specifically out of Luke 14, which we'll get to in a moment. But when I look at this crowd, I've got mixed emotions to a large extent. A large part of me is really excited because I, I see that God is doing something. I see people not only coming to a church service, but lives getting changed and transformed. And for me, that gets me excited. That's what I want to live for, is God transforming lives. I love it. But on the other hand, when I look at Jesus, you know, Jesus was so different so different than me, so different than you, so different than all of us. And he had a different way of looking at things that sometimes challenges me to my core. In fact, mostly what Jesus does challenges me to my core. And when I look at the way that Jesus looked at a crowd, sometimes I'm so shocked because it, it's, it's a little bit different than the way that I look at a crowd. You see, Jesus kept calm when there was a crowd. My heart starts racing. I'm like, whoa, there's so many people. What's going to happen here? I think Andre felt it too tonight. It's a bit intimidating. But Jesus was calm. And uh, Jesus obviously wasn't against the crowd. He, he gave free food to about 5,000 people. If you do that in Stellenbosch, you'll have about 10,000 students coming. <laughs> if you give free food. He multiplied the fish and the loaves. And a massive crowd came. So it's not like Jesus had a problem with crowds. In fact, he loved it. If there's people who are following him, that was, that was what he lived for. That's what he came for, for people to follow him. But he was also so counter-cultural when it came to crowds. And you see it with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. It's a massive group of people coming to follow Jesus. I think 
Jesus felt to an extent like I feel just multiplied by a hundred or multiplied by a thousand. There were masses of people actually following him. And Jesus looked at the crowd and he started preaching to them. And he didn't preach a this is how to be a better you by Friday message. It wasn't anything like that. He didn't preach a message of well-being. He didn't preach a message of prosperity. He didn't preach anything like that. In fact, he preached a message that went something like this. You have heard in the Old Testament, it said that you need to do this. But I'm telling you that it's even more difficult to follow me because it's an issue of the heart. And he kept challenging the crowd, challenging the crowd, challenging the crowd. Because when he looked at a crowd, he wasn't excited by the masses. He wanted to see who of the masses would really follow him when it was difficult to follow him. Another time, a big group of people come around Jesus. And it's so interesting for me what he does. He shocks them. And I'm like, Jesus, why do you do that? That's not cool. That's not how you gain a crowd. It's not how you grow a church. That's not how you do it. But Jesus looks at this massive crowd and he stands up and he speaks and he says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And if you don't do that, you have no part in me. He doesn't explain that he's speaking about communion. <laughs> he doesn't. He just says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And it says that many people stood up and they left the place where Jesus was teaching because they were offended in their hearts. Jesus is okay with offending a crowd because he wants to see who's truly following him. He's not only into masses, but he's into masses actually following him with their entire heart. That's what our Lord and our Savior is about. And then after this, he comes, the disciples come to him and he says, and where are you going? Are you not going to leave me? And they turn to him and they say, Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Where can we go? And I felt in preparing for tonight, I felt like I didn't know there were going to be so many people. Honestly, I didn't know that. But I felt like God wanted to, in, in, in a sense, stand in front of a crowd tonight and say, yes, it's exciting that you're here. Yes, it's fun. Yes, the worship is pumping. Yes, there's lots of people singing and, follow, and following me. And people are going to greet you and make you feel welcome. Yes, all of those things are great. But I feel like what Jesus wants to do is stand in front of this crowd tonight and say, what if I offend you? What if it's difficult to follow me? What if you need to count the cost? Will you still follow me even when it's difficult? So am I excited about what's happening here tonight? You bet you I'm excited. But I've also seen enough red flags in scripture that I know that a crowd doesn't mean success. And so many churches are only living for big crowds. They only wanna attract the numbers and they're so scared of doing anything that will offend someone that they soften up the gospel, they soften up everything they do, they make it so scripted and so perfect because they're so scared that people will leave, but Jesus is not like that. Jesus is saying, you can't just come on your own terms. If you come, you need to follow me. You need to count the cost. You need to decide whether you really wanna follow me. And I think that Jesus wants to do that tonight. And in a sense, this message that I'm preaching, and this is not me, I wanna speak about the scripture here. It's not Lena trying to be offensive. I'm not supposed to offend you. But when Jesus offends you, when the scripture offends you, that's a good thing. Because it either leads you to leave, which is okay, or it's gonna lead you to be a passionate follower of Jesus. And I would rather have a big hall full of passionate followers of Jesus than have a mixed group of just lukewarm people 
Because no, that's not the church that I see Jesus calling us to. And I feel like God is calling many of you to a decision tonight. Are you going to follow me wholeheartedly and not just sort of follow me? If that means you don't come next week again, then we've got space for others. We don't have so much space, honestly. If you're not going to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, we need your seat. We need your seat. <laughs> we need your seat. In fact, we normally can't say it because in all of our churches, we, we normally don't have pews, but we don't need pew warmers. Now we can say it. We don't want pew warmers. We want passionate, wholehearted followers of Jesus. That's what he wants. And he's calling you tonight, count the cost. Are you following me or are you here because it's a vibe? Why are you here? If you're here because it's a vibe, I believe God wants to speak into your heart tonight and come and shift something. Luke 14, verse 25 to 28, and then verse 33 is what I'm mainly going to speak about tonight. And it says, I think you have the ESV, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I'm going to read it here. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus. There was a great crowd in front of him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Offensive. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And then verse 33, I'm jumping a few verses. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Say with me, ouch. <laughs> ouch, Jesus, what are you saying? Like, that's not how you grow a megachurch, Jesus. That's not how you do it. That's offensive. You're calling people to a high standard. Jesus, what are you saying? Now, I want to go through this scripture tonight because I think there are three main things that Jesus is challenging us and that you need to ask yourself tonight as a sort of litmus test. Where am I when it comes to these things? First, Jesus calls us, and I'm going to explain this because it sounds strange. Jesus calls us to hate. It's what the Bible says. It's not what I say. You're thinking, Lena, this is a sect I'm leaving. No, it's not a sect. We're reading out of the Bible. Jesus calls us to hate. Second thing, Jesus calls us to bear our cross or to pick up our cross. And thirdly, Jesus calls each of us to count the cost and decide whether we want to follow him. So I'm going to go through those three things tonight. And it's in the scripture we just mentioned. Firstly, Jesus says, I'm going to read that again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate that's a strange word. His own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, when we come to a difficult portion in the scripture, and I've said this so many times, the thing that we do is we let scripture interpret. Oh, hallelujah. You guys are so cool. You're listening. When something's difficult and I don't understand it, I say, God, what do other scriptures say about this? Let scripture interpret scripture. You don't firstly pick up a commentary. You don't firstly phone the pastor. You firstly pick up the Bible and start reading other portions to understand what Jesus is saying here. 
So when it comes to this word hate, it doesn't make sense initially. Because in Matthew 5 verse 44, which you don't have to put up, we are commanded to love even our enemies. We're commanded to love our enemies. In John 15 verse 12, the Bible says to us that we are to do everything in love. Not hate. And 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, amongst many other scriptures, says that we are to obey, and in fact, obeying is also loving our parents. That's what the Bible teaches us. So why does Jesus tell us that if we want to be his followers, we actually need to hate these people that he mentions? Why does he do it? I'm going to tell you a story of what happened to me this week, and I'm, I'm hoping that it's going to help you understand why Jesus did it. I've got a friend. His name is Ricky. It's such an interesting name. I thought about it. It's like Ricky Martin days or something, those older folk here. But his name is Ricky, and he lives in Joburg. He was the first person that actually started taking me to the clubs in my unsaved days. So in Joburg, we've got the whole club scene, right? It's like <laughs> we've got the whole, we've got the whole um, club scene over here. I don't know. People don't do it, but we had, we had the club scene over there. And I was about... You, you won't believe this. I was about um, grade, nev grade 9, grade 10. How old are you then? 14, 15. And I wanted to get into the clubs. And this guy, Ricky, he was a bit older. And he, was, he said, I'm going to get you into this place called Vertigo. That's the club that we went to. And so I put on a coll college shirt. Please, you can laugh at me, but don't laugh at me after the service. And I straightened my hair. And I didn't like smoking but I, I bought a pack of cigarettes just to look older and I sat with the cigarettes in, the, in my mouth and I stood in line and I was with Ricky and eventually he got me into this club and I was nervous. Got in, like I'm, I don't earn a salary or anything. I had like 20 or 30 rand. Don't have money to buy alcohol, so I just bought straw rum shots. That all, that's all I could buy in my unsaved days. So I got so drunk that on the way back in Ricky's car, he had a little um, Uno I started passing out in front and threw up and it was like, Ricky for me is a reminder of my unsaved days before I met Jesus. He's a reminder of that. He's the person who sort of introduced me to many of the things that actually pulled me so far away from God that God had to do a massive miracle to pull me back into his kingdom. And this week, for some reason, out of the blue, I just had a dream about Ricky, childhood friend of mine. And I looked on my phone and I'm like, oh wow, I actually have Ricky's number. And I sent him a message and I, I'm not gonna explain the dream. And I said, Ricky, I just dreamt about you this week. And in my dream, I actually feel like God wants me to ask you where your relationship with him is, whether you love God or not. Sure is it, a few minutes later, Ricky sends me a voice note back and he says to me, oh, listen, I haven't seen this guy in many years. I cut ties with the people that did those things with me because I knew that I had to, to follow Jesus. Didn't have anything to do with those people anymore because I wanted to follow Jesus. And anyway, Ricky sends me a message and he says, and many of you have had this before, when you try and tell one of your friends about Jesus, but they think they're Christian. Have you ever noticed? Everyone's a Christian all of a sudden when you try and speak to them about Jesus. All of a sudden they love God. And he, he goes on this rant, yeah, no, I've got a relationship with Jesus. It's, it's okay. I'm mostly okay. Yeah, we just need to give our lives to Jesus and give ourselves to Jesus and everything will be okay and he will look after us. And in his tone, I can just hear this guy doesn't know Jesus. But how do I get it across to him? You know what? The only way for me to actually help him understand is not to speak about love. It's to speak about hate. 
because he is going to say to me that he loves God. Because 79% of South Africans think that they're Christians. They think that they love God. But if I were to tell him, Ricky, do you hate going to the clubs? Because I do. Ricky, do you hate the fact that you live with your girlfriend? Because I would have. Ricky, do you hate alcohol? Ricky, do you hate drugs? Because I know you're involved with drugs. Do you hate those things? Because if I can show him what to hate and he sees, no, I'm not actually hating these things, then I can shock him in a sense and make him see, well, actually, I don't love God because I don't hate the things that he hates for my life. Does that make sense? So what Jesus is doing is he's not saying, if you love me, these are the things that you need to do. He's saying, if you love me, my, your love for me will almost start to feel like other things are hate compared to your love to me, for me. He's using something that we call hyperbole. He's making a big statement to shock you and to make you realize that compared to Jesus, all other relationships should actually look like hate. That's how much he wants us to love him. Jesus doesn't want half-hearted followers. He doesn't want people who like him. And unfortunately, so many churches today sit full of people who like Jesus. They're dating Jesus, but they never marry Jesus. They like the idea of Jesus, but they never come to the point where they hate everything that's standing opposed to their relationship with Jesus. And I feel like Jesus is standing here tonight and he's actually asking you, yes, you say that you love me. You come to church. You, you only do that if you believe that you love me. But do you hate the other things of this world compared to your love for me? Do you hate this sounds so bad. Do you hate your parents in contrast to the love that you have for me? Meaning, are you willing to put me above your love for your parents? Rather obey me than obey your parents is what Jesus is calling us for. Do you hate your friends in contrast to the, the way that you love Jesus? Or will you firstly follow your friends then follow the will that God has for your life? This is a difficult one. I'll tell you a quick story about this. Do you hate your husband and wife? Let me rather say it like this, because you know what Jesus is trying to say. Do you love Jesus more than you love your husband and your wife if you're married? Which I think not so many people are. I remember this in, in my life. Carla, my wife, is sitting back there. We've got two beautiful babies who, they're supposed to be in bed, but we, like, we want to follow Jesus with everything, so we're bringing them to church. And it's difficult and we're not sure if it's going to work. I told her if the pawpaw hits the fan, you just go home and put them in bed because it's really difficult for to, to have four-month-old babies out this time of night. But um, we, when we were dating, listen, I fell in love with Carla from the get-go. I saw that she was competitive. I liked the way that she looked, and she loved Jesus, and she could sing, and I was like, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. And she was in Josh Chen, so I'm like, yes, I'm in. <laughs> So I fell in love with this girl, and she lived in Swellendam, and I lived in Bloberg Strand. And you know, I, I, like, I tried my best. And for six months, she battered me all the time. I would go to her, and I'd be like, God, I really like you. And she'd be like, yeah, and I'm interested in friendship. <laughs> and it hurt. It was really so difficult. After six months of trying and pursuing her and giving myself to her, and, and literally not having petrol money and driving all the way to Swellendam almost every single weekend, driving back, not going through the toll gate because I don't have money for the toll gate. 
And then when I get to the top of the pass, I, I, I put my car in neutral and I free all the way down the pass. <laughs> and then for a day or two, I just eat the little scraps that I have at home because I'm like pursuing this girl. I want to marry her. I'm like, I'm convinced this is the girl for me. Anyway, eventually she gives in. She could re resist this no longer. <laughs> <laughs> and she gives in and she decides okay I don't know why, why I was so blind for these six months her eyes open up and, and, and she just realizes what she could have missed right and she gives in and she's like okay cool we can start dating we start dating it, it really it was an amazing time um, it, it's, it's good being in love right who's in love in here Oh, some of you, it's so nice being in love and so irritating for the people around you. <laughs> but it's so nice being in love. Then eventually, um, in November, I think three or four years ago, I asked her to marry me and she said yes. And it was one of the most special days of my life. And when you get engaged, you are Sean and Amber are, are engaged. They're getting married on 14th of December, 13th of December. <laughs> It's such an exciting time. It feels like so much is leading up to this moment and you're in love and, and everything is, it's nice. You just want to be with this person all the time. And I remember in our relationship, the big thing, the big fight that we have, if I, if I may, had, if I may, was the fact that I really felt called for full-time ministry. And I wanted to live a life where I say, Jesus, send me anytime, anywhere, any place. That's the life I want to live. And the first thing that Carla said to me when I told her that I liked her, she said, yeah, but you're an elder. You're a pastor. Like, that's not the life that she thought she wanted to live. It was a scary life for her. It, it wasn't that what she saw for her future. And so in a big sense, my calling was in jeopardy because I felt like if, if God is not going to change her heart, then how are we going to do this? I might sidetrack what I, I love Jesus for and that I want to live for Jesus. I might fall off the bandwagon if she doesn't come with me. And one day, I remember it so clearly, we were sitting together and I, I went to her and I said, Carla, Leafy, my love, whatever I called her, I can't remember. I said to her, really, I, I do love you and I do want to marry you. But if this thing is not going to shift in your life and it doesn't seem like it's shifting, I think we should, we should actually break up our engagement. And I'm telling you, there were tears. There were so many tears. It was one of the most difficult times in our relationship because I was serious. Because I love Jesus more than I love her. I do. And it's one thing to say that. It's another thing in practice. Does your life actually show it? And she can tell you now that for a long time, she, she prayed this prayer. She said, God, please give me a husband one day that will love me, you more than he loves me. And when we came to that point, I said, remember that you prayed that? This is it. I want to follow Jesus. And if our relationship is going to get in the way of that, then we can't be in a relationship. We can't get married. And we had to wrestle that thing through. And by the grace of God, he did a massive work in her life. And she's full-time in ministry with me now. He did a massive miracle. But I was willing to lay that down for the sake of God because in contrast to my love for Jesus, I hate my relationship with her. I love Jesus more than I love her. You know, when some of you get married one day, you're gonna struggle to follow Jesus because your attention is gonna be so much on someone else. 
But the life that Jesus is calling us to is saying, your marriage is secondary. My relationship with you is primary. That's what he's calling us to. It's a difficult call. Do you love your boyfriend or your girlfriend more than you love Jesus Christ, or is it the other way around? See, it's so sad for me in Stellenbosch, I've seen it so many times where people start dating someone that doesn't love Jesus. Or they say they love Jesus, but they're not in church, or they're not following him wholeheartedly. You know what ends up happening? 99% of the time, you are not going to influence your boyfriend and girlfriend. Do not date potential. Date the person who's standing in front of you at that stage. Because I've seen so many people leave the church, fall away from Jesus because they want to date potential. Sometimes it works, mostly it doesn't. Mostly it doesn't. Do you love Jesus so much that you're willing to lay down your infatuation? That you're willing to say, I don't care if I like this boy, I don't care if I like this girl, I want to follow Jesus with my entire life. I'm willing to lay it down. I'm willing to break up if that's what's needed, but Jesus is my primary focus. Amen? That is what Jesus is calling us for. If he's saying against all of these things, do you love Jesus more than you love your children? Now, no one here except myself, Carla, and Irina have children, I think. There we go. Irina's there at the back. Anyone else with children here? No one else. Okay. Not that you know of, right? It's a bad joke. I said last week it's a bad joke. I shouldn't have. Shouldn't tell that joke. Okay. You know what? You all are going to, when you get children one day, you're going to face a big trial in your life because children are all consuming. You love them so much. It's like you want to give everything to them. But listen, primarily you need to live for Jesus. So many people follow God when they're students, follow God when they're young working people. But the moment they have children, their children come first and they stop following God because my children have sports. My children need to go to school. My children need to get to bed early. Can't come to church. Can't be at community. My children are first in my life. Listen, Jesus is calling us to a higher standard. He doesn't care about the crowd. He's saying, I care about wholehearted devotion to me. And he's standing in front of you tonight. He's saying, are you willing to let everything go for the sake of being my disciple? Are you willing? The last question in that one is, in, in verse 33, he actually says that we, one who cannot renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So do you love Jesus more than everything that you have? Do you? Cardinal Albertine, who leads the morning congregation, he has this question that I think is so brilliant to help us identify if anything in your life is above Jesus. He says, if there's anything that you would say to Jesus, God, please don't take me now, because I still want to do this. Then that's something that you place above Jesus. God, please, I don't want to be with you now. I don't want you to come now because I first want to get married. Marriage is an idol in your life. You love the idea of marriage more than you love Jesus. God, please don't come yet. I, st I first want to finish my studies. Studies, it's an idol in your life. It's more important than Jesus. God, don't come yet. I first want to be successful. Money is an idol in your life. It's something you're placing above Jesus. God, don't come now. I first want to. What's happening in your mind? 
Whatever that is, I believe God is calling you tonight and saying, will you lay it down? Because it's in laying it down that you can be a true follower of me. Second thing Jesus calls us to is to bear our cross. Now, that's such an interesting thing because we don't understand it because no one gets crucified anymore. Not today, right? But in Roman times, in the time of the Bible, the worst punishment that was bestowed on a person, on a criminal, was to actually die on a cross. The word excruciating comes from the word crux, which comes from the word cross. So the word excruciating actually explains dying on a cross. And we know that our Savior, you know, it's so interesting. We, people wear crosses and they've got crosses in front of their houses. That's like a torture device that you're hanging around your neck. Because that's what it was. The cross was a torture device. It was the most inhumane way of killing a person. And sometimes in following Jesus, he's going to call you to a place where you are going to have to do something and pick up a life that is really difficult. It feels like you're going to have to die to your own ways, die to your own self. But if you are not willing to do that, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. The cross, again, I'm, I'm using color tonight. Color has this illustration where he says, a cross is anywhere where your will and Jesus' will crosses. That's a cross. And that's what you need to be willing to pick up. I remember so clearly, when I was in my first year, I went to a Bible school in Wellington, and man, it was difficult. I remember following Jesus, and I had so many things to lay down, primarily my desire for a wife, actually. It was one of the biggest things. In our first year, there was this rule that you're not allowed to date. Who of you would go to a place where you're not allowed to date in your first year? Oh, some of you, all right. Hallelujah. God will bless all of you. Put up your hand there. For me, that was a massive thing. I felt like, were you taking this away from me? I've got such a desire to be in a relationship. I don't want to lay that down, but I had to. And there were so many areas that God was just challenging me. It was like every day I had to pick up this cross, pick up areas where I wanted to do something, but I knew Jesus had something else for my life. And I sat in a coffee shop with this lady called Doret. She's a, a missionary in Japan now, which is so amazing. And it was so, so funny. Both of us just sat crying in the coffee shop and we're like, it's so difficult to follow Jesus. It's not nice. <laughs> and I think people thought I was breaking up with or something in the coffee shop. But we were just crying about how difficult it is. And you know, sometimes it's really difficult to follow Jesus. If it's fun following Jesus all the time, then you might not be following Jesus, people. You might not. Because he's calling you to a life where you lay down your own will to pick up his will. That's what it is to pick up your cross. Come on, we need this preached in churches more. It's not about you, it's about him. You must become less so that he can become more. That's who we're following. If you live for yourself, you're not going to do anything in this world. But if Jesus shines through you, that's where the power is. But that means that you need to deny yourself. You need to die to the things that you want in order to, to find the things that Jesus wants. Jesus had to do this. There's one time in the Bible where Jesus' will was different than the will of the Father. You know that. It was on the cross. Luke 22, verse 42, if you can put that up for me, please. Jesus said, Father, he's hanging on the cross. He's about to die for the sin of the entire world. He's about to die. Let me just give you some context for your sin. Everything that you've done wrong, everything that you are about to do wrong, 
everything that you're going to do wrong in the future, Jesus took the sin of the entire world and he died on the cross for our sin. So imagine that. Who's ever felt guilty about something bad that you've done? Now keep your hand up quickly. Remember that guilt. Remember that feeling that you're feeling now. That, that sense of feeling dirty. Sense of feeling like, ah, oh, this is not nice. Now this is not the entire world. This is just a room full of people. Now imagine if all of the emotions that everyone felt in those moments and all of the times that they've done bad things in their lives, imagine all of these hands up. Imagine we can take all of these emotions and place it on one person. What would that feel like? You can sit, put down your hands. It would feel horrible. It would feel like a pit of depression. But Jesus did more than that. He lived a perfect life. He didn't have to die for our sins. But all of us deserve death. And he said, I know that people deserve death, but I'm willing to take their death on my shoulder. I'm willing to take their sin, their guilt, I'm willing to take it on my shoulder and die for it. But he stood there in that moment with all of the sin of the world, all of the sin that you've committed on his shoulders. He felt the burden of it. He felt the dirt of it. And he said, God, if there's another way, please let it be. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We need to come to a point where that is the prayer that we pray. We cannot be nominal Christians, but we need to be Christians that when God's will opposes ours, then we say, God, this is difficult, but not my will, but your will be done. When God finds someone who can pray that prayer with sincerity, he finds someone who can change the world. If you cannot pray that prayer, your will might be an idol in your life. Your will might be what you're actually living for. But God is calling people who can pray the prayer that Jesus prayed. God, not my will, but your will be done. Are you living for the will of Jesus? God is calling you tonight to say, to make a decision. You're just part of a crowd or are you willing to follow him with everything? Finally, um, the last piece there, Jesus uses an analogy and he actually uses two analogies in that portion. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower, meaning go through a great feat, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying to you is if you think that you want to follow me for the rest of your life, first count the cost. Salvation is free, but it's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost your life. It's going to cost you laying down everything in front of Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to live for you. And tonight, I feel like Jesus is saying to us, I save you not because of your good works, but now that you are saved, following me is going to be a difficult road. It's going to be a narrow road. Yes, there's going to be joy, and I find so much joy in following Jesus. It's the best thing that I want to do with my life. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I find joy. It's not a burden for me following Jesus, but it's the strangest thing because many times it's so difficult. But I've just, I've found life in him and I want to do the difficult. And for atheists and people who don't believe, they don't make sense. They're like, why? Why are you living this life? And I'm like, you don't understand once you've tasted the goodness of our God, once you've tasted the love of our Father, once you've been in his presence, nothing else matters. I just want to live for him. So it will cost you to follow Jesus. Are you willing? For some of you, it's going to cost you your studies. What if your devotion to Jesus 
is more important than your studies? What would that look like? You know, there's this trend, and I understand it to an extent, but I also don't, that when exam times come for the students, you guys just disappear a little bit, right? And I understand you need to study. Sometimes you write a test, and I'm not, we not, no, I'm not putting law on you. Listen to me. I'm not putting any law on you because you need to follow Jesus in the way that, that he's calling to follow you. But, but it is a question that you need to ask yourself. Is Jesus more important than my studies at this moment? Am I willing to get 5% or 10% less for a test in order to follow Jesus with my entire life? You are not in Stellenbosch for your studies. You're here to serve Jesus. That's why he sent you here. It's not to get a degree. Your degree is gonna be uh, with you for 50, 60 years if you're lucky. Following Jesus will go into eternity. That's why he has you here. Some of the people that I look up to, Ginter in the morning congregation, Brigitte's sister, he was one of the top engineering students. Yes, it's a brother, brother, sorry. Brother. Top engineering students, but I looked up to that man so much because he, he got the second highest mark for his engineering um, uh, scripts ever in engineering. But he, he was so devoted to the things of God. He said, I don't care if I earn less marks. I want to follow Jesus. Is that the life that you want to live? Or do you want to say, I cummed? I cummed my degree. Or do you want to say, I came to Stellenbosch and I lived fully for Jesus? I know what I would have wanted to say. For some of you, it will cost your job. Your job might cause you to do something unethical. Are you willing to stand up and say, no, I'm following Jesus? It will cost you something. Following Jesus will cost you money. It will cost you money. It does. Sometimes God is going to expect of you to give money to someone else. He's going to expect of you to give money to the kingdom, to the church even. It's going to cost you. When I pull your bank account, can I see that you follow Jesus in your finances? It should cost you something to follow Jesus. For some of you, it's going to cost relationships. When I got saved, I knew that I had to reach out to my friends who basically many of them got addicted to drugs. Some of them are dead now. It was, I came out of a wild group of friends actually. I knew that to a large extent I had to reach out, but they couldn't be my primary friends anymore because I wasn't of the world anymore. I had to cut ties. I had to say, God, I can't be with those people primarily. I'll reach out to them, but I won't make my home with them. Some of you need to cut ties. Following Jesus should cost you your friendships at times. For some of you, it's gonna cost you your ideologies, things that you think that's opposed to the scriptures. Are you willing to lay those things down? It's gonna cost you that. For some of you, following Jesus might cost you a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Are you willing? It's so worth it, people. It's so worth it. Charles Spurgeon, I don't know if you have that quote, if you can put it up. Otherwise, I'm just gonna read it. Okay, no, it's fine. I'm gonna read it. Charles Spurgeon said, nothing is more I don't know how you say this, injurious, like in, causes injury. Anyone? It's an old word, okay. Nothing causes more injury <laughs> to a church than a large delusion with half-hearted members and nothing more dangerous to persons themselves than the, to allow them to put on an untrue profession. Nothing is more dangerous to you than to come here week by week but not become a, follow, a passionate follower of Jesus. The more you do it, the more your heart is going to harden. But Jesus is calling you tonight. He's saying, will you follow me? 
It's worth it. Listen to me. It's worth it. I wish I could let you experience what it feels like to follow Jesus with your entire heart. It is worth it. No cost is too great if I can follow Jesus. If you've tasted of him, everything becomes worth it. So is quantity important to Jesus? Yes. He does care about numbers, but he also cares about quality. And I believe that he's standing here tonight and he is excited about every one of you here. But he's saying, are you a a devoted follower of me? Am I more important than the things of your life? Let's stand as I end.